Welcome to Learning with Lisa, Student Success Beyond Expectations podcast with Lisa Navarra, award-winning educator, consultant, behavior specialist, author, and parent. This podcast provides support for school leaders, educators, and parents. We share and discuss evidence-based resources that are embedded in social and emotional learning to meet the needs of students who struggle focusing and learning. Teachers and parents find information and strategies to improve students' academic, behavioral, and social-emotional performance. It's time to turn kids from I can't into I can. Welcome to today's episode where we are going to be talking with Dr. Plunkett, a pediatric neuropsychologist. And today's focus is really going to be for you parents and teachers who have students in your class who they're just getting by with their grades or they're doing well and they're getting grades that are acceptable and they're passing, but you know these children are struggling. Struggling in ways that we're not quite sure how to provide the services and support to them. Dr. Plunkett has a wide range of experience and I'm really happy to bring her on today because her experience is within the schools and through her private practice. She also provides executive functioning and coaching along with that executive functioning and behavioral therapy to her clients. She provides evaluations and consultation. You're going to find Dr. Plunkett has a lot of information that's going to bridge some of that, those questions of why are my students not performing? I'm concerned about my child. What's my next step? Where do I go for help? We're going to clear up a lot of those types of questions today just for you. Welcome, Dr. Plunkett. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's such an honor and privilege to be on this podcast. And thank you for all the work that you do. Oh, my pleasure. It's great to collaborate with you. So can you talk to the parents and the teachers in the importance of what you do and really how to, how to bridge the gap between home and school environments? Absolutely. So kids and families come to me for a variety of reasons. So um, for example, maybe a child, maybe the parents recognized that their child was struggling academically. So they referred, had their child referred to the Committee on Special Education. The committee went through the process, the standard process of doing an IQ testing, um, of doing the academic testing, speech, OTPT. Um, and what they found was the child, there may be some weaknesses, but not enough for them to qualify um, to be eligible for special education services. Maybe a 504 was considered, but again, the child doesn't have, they don't meet diagnostic criteria, or they don't meet criteria for a 504 plan either. Um, and then a lot of times the academic team or the parents, they're kind of left with questions. Again, like you said, what do we do now? Um, and that's when I might find families coming to me for a comprehensive neuropsychological evaluation. Other times families didn't go through the school, but they recognize their child is struggling. They're not sure why, could be behaviorally, emotionally, academically, maybe they're concerned about their intellectual development. So then they'll come again, they'll, they'll find me, find a neuropsychologist and uh, seek out an evaluation to determine what do we do from here? What are the next steps? What are the recommendations for school, for home, et cetera? Talk to us about what type of information is provided in um, that evaluation. But talk to us in a way where educators can get a grasp on it and parents can say, oh, you know, I, I can see how this can be helpful. 
Absolutely. So there's multiple components to a neuropsychological evaluation. So the first kind of main component that we talk about is the cognitive piece. So for the cognitive piece, that's going to look at the child's language development, that's expressive and receptive language development, visual spatial functioning, executive functioning, attention and executive functioning, processing efficiency, memory. We look at both verbal and visual spatial memory. Um, and then, and then with that too, so I'll stop there. So that's one piece of it. And we want to understand, so if your child is struggling in any of these areas, we know that it can impact other areas as well. So I'll speak to that a little bit more in just a moment. So, so the cognitive piece is one piece. And then we have the academics. So we look at the child's reading, writing, and math development um, and, and all facets of it. So we look at both fluency and just general understanding and learning within those domains. We also uh, look at the behavioral, social, emotional piece. So a lot of times neuropsychologists will give standardized questionnaires. Again, standardized questionnaires are, are normed on a large um, population of children who are quote unquote typically developing. And then we can look from there at patterns of functioning. So we look at patterns of, ex if we're speaking behaviorally, externalizing behavior. So does your child struggle with managing their behaviors? Are they a child who has a lot of outbursts, maybe some aggression, defiance, that kind of thing? look at internalizing behaviors, anxiety, depression, sadness, nervousness more generally. And then additionally, we want to look at their social development as well. So neuropsychologists may stick to standardized questionnaires. They may go into more lengthier sort of um, adaptive questionnaires. For example, Vineland is an adaptive questionnaire. So that gets at both daily life functioning and the child's independence with daily life activities, as well as, again, we would look at the behavioral, social, emotional piece. Um, so look at all aspects. So that's the beauty of the neuropsychological evaluation is parents come with questions. They're not exactly sure where it all starts. You know, does the child have a difficulty with learning and then they're also struggling emotionally or are they struggling emotionally? And that's why they can't access the curriculum. And then of course, I think we're going to speak about this more um, in a bit, but how does any cognitive weaknesses impact other areas? So if we're thinking about executive functioning, we know that executive functioning can impact language processing certainly can impact academics and of course the child's ability to learn and then recall that information for example on tests so we look at patterns of strengths and weaknesses in this child's comprehensive profile right and really when you say domains do you mean like really they're like little subtests in certain areas just for our listeners who are not mm -hmm. quite sure and so really you're digging deep in in every area of learning for the child, is that correct? Correct, yes, absolutely. So the testing we do, a neuropsychologist will do an evaluation typically over multiple sessions and they're usually, the sessions usually last several hours. So it's it's very lengthy testing. You know, we do a great job as neuropsychologists of keeping the children engaged. We give a lot of breaks and candy and snacks and whatever, but it is it's very lengthy testing. So within each quote unquote domain, so if we think about language, there's gonna be multiple subtests within that domain to examine that child's functioning in that area. Again, language, executive functioning, attention. So we look for patterns of scores, not just like, oh, one score was bad. We look for patterns of scores to truly understand um, how the child is functioning. So those parents really looking for information and answers, this is a really great place to go to get the answer to your why. Why is my child struggling in school? Why don't they remember? Why are they looking at me? And it seems like they understand one minute and the next minute they have no 
cognition of what just happened or what they were supposed to do. Yes. This can give you your answers. So not only do you give the areas of strength, the areas of, like you said, average functioning, but also areas in need of improvement. And then you also su um, supply some recommendations, some realistic recommendations. Are those recommendations um, just to the parent? Are they to the parent and the, the schools? Tell us about those recommendations. Yeah, that's a great question. And I was laughing and smiling when you said about the, about the parents who come and they say that they'll teach the kid one thing one minute and they forget the next thing. I, I get that all the time. We just went over this and then the child can't remember a minute later. So yeah, we, we address all of those questions. So absolutely. So from this comprehensive evaluation, we have comprehensive recommendations. So the recommendations are, they give um, uh, a full recommendations for the school, for the home, and then general functioning. We also, if we notice um, even things, for example, if you tell me your child is not sleeping well or they have sleep disturbance, I'm going to include recommendations to refer you back to your physician, whether it's your pediatrician, your neurologist, your psychiatrist, whoever, I'm going to refer you back to them with specific questions to seek out for them as well, because we see the the, the child as a, as a whole, right? We look at all, all perspectives. So if they're if they're not eating well, if they're not sleeping well, we also want to know that information and we're going to give you recommendations for that. Just going back to the school and the home, yes, the recommendations are comprehensive. So thinking about the school um, based on, and, and uh, I didn't mention this, but of course part of the evaluation is also diagnostic. So if your child meets diagnostic criteria for any neurodevelopmental disorder, meaning learning disability, ADHD, intellectual disability, autism, those would obviously be included. All of the diagnostics would be included in the evaluation. So can you tell us what you mean by diagnostics? Uh-huh. So with this evaluation, again, we're looking for areas of deficit. And then typically your neuropsychologist for specific concerns or as they arise throughout the evaluation, your neuropsychologist will also probably do a bit of diagnostic interviewing to determine if your child meets criteria. So again, common disorders that we're looking for are things like an intellectual disability, a specific learning disorder, such as dyslexia, um, a developmental coordination disorder, also called dyspraxia, ADHD, autism. Those are, those are very common um, areas that we're looking at and very common areas that would be diagnosed within your evaluation. Um, and then children who come in with a, with a diag diagnosis, for example, a child with epilepsy worked for several years in epilepsy, children with a diagnosis of epilepsy, we certainly know how, depending on the area of the brain that's impacted, how that's going to impact their neuropsych profile. So again, all of that information, if your child comes in with a diagnosis or if we're providing a diagnosis, that is included. And then from there, again, going back to the recommendations. So based on your child's profile, we may recommend that your child be, if your child hasn't been seen by the Committee on Special Education, we may recommend a referral to the CSC because we believe your child does meet eligibility criteria for an individualized education plan, an IEP. Um, or perhaps your child already went through the CSE process, but again, the academic team knew that there was something going on, but the school can't diagnose, so they recommend the neuropsychological evaluation, and then based on that, if your child meets diagnostic criteria, we may be going back to the CSE to determine eligibility for the IEP, given the new information gained from the neuropsychological evaluation. Um, some children don't meet criteria special education criteria for an IEP. So in fact, they may meet criteria for what's called the 504 accommodation plan. Those are kids, for example, a child who has ADHD or anxiety that perhaps 
it's not inhibiting their ability to access the curriculum. So they don't meet criteria for an IEP, but they do have learning difficulties and weaknesses. Then we can get them a 504 plan. But even still, children who don't meet for an IEP or 504, we still can provide um, recommendations for academics, right? So we can still, um, and Lisa, you and I spoke to this a bit and, and probably will speak to this more, but I have been trying as a neuropsychologist and growing as a neuropsychologist to be very creative for my kids who don't meet IEP or 504 classification criteria. Um, so I've been trying to provide teachers with strategies and information about how they can help the child. Let's say the gifted child, but they struggle with their academics because of executive weaknesses. I try to give a lot of recommendations, specific individualized recommendations for how can the teachers work with the child in the educational setting, even if they can't be classified or given a 504 plan. Can you give us an example of what that might look like? Sure, so more and more so I'm seeing schools um, are getting interested in what executive functioning is, for example. Uh, you know, the schools have been over time doing a great job incorporating the social emotional learning curriculums and I, I'm hoping that we're kind of trending toward executive functioning. Trending toward. <laughs> I love that. I like that. Now, all my listeners out there, if you haven't picked up executive functioning and working memory somehow weasels its way into just about every episode, I'm going to stop you right here. Dr. Plunkett, <laughs> can you tell the listeners what executive functioning is? Because... I can't just say it enough. It's something where one day I don't want it to be trending toward. <laughs> I want it to be infused within the curriculum on a daily basis. I want to see our kids who struggle to perform, reach their potential. So what is executive functioning? <laughs> I love that, Lisa. I so, I, we are kindred spirits. I so agree. So it's so executive functioning. This is, it's a prefrontal cortex that is in charge of things like sustaining your attention, planning, organizing, time management, task set switching, being able to multitask, working memory, of course. And in the classroom, we need all of those things in order to be a functioning successful student. And there are so many different diagnoses and presentations that can impact executive functioning. Children with ADHD are kind of historically commonly recognized kids, but also kids who struggle with anxiety and depression, kids who have kind of more general learning weaknesses absolutely are going to struggle with executive functioning. Um, and, and kids with medical diagnoses, of course, we also know often have frontal systems dysfunctions or kids with epilepsy. So we need, and, and, and even still, we have to think about executive functioning as a core skill group really doesn't get fully developed until you're in your 20s. Right, so we should really be working on this for kids of all ages. Get it solidified now, so then you aren't coming to me in high school panicking that your kid, like you know, can't get the homework done. No <laughs> direction, never does his work. Not motivated. Right, right. I know he could do so much better. And yes. if you really listen to Dr. Plunkett explain what executive functioning is, there was a long list she referenced the prefrontal cortex for any of you really curious listeners out there, just go Google PFC, prefrontal cortex. It's huge. And this is the area in the brain. It's right behind your forehead without yes. any formal terms. It's a place that lives, the executive function lives there. And we need to be teaching toward these skills. And when we do, we see less anxiety. 
We yes. see kids who feel more in control. We see kids who are less defensive and who are more likely to take chances of getting something they think they're going to do wrong than if we are not teaching toward this area. And thank you for that. <laughs> Fabulous. So I interrupted you. I'm not sure if you remember where you were. Do you remember where you were? Um, no. Um, tell me. I think we were at recommendations oh. for um, yeah, what it might look like. What would you tell a teacher in this mm. comprehensive report that they don't know what to do? They've never been trained in this. They're, they have the biggest hearts. They want to help their students. And they get this report from you. Hopefully, but parents out there, you need to remember to send the report into your child's teacher. And not only that, remember, if your child is in secondary, middle school, high school, they have more than one teacher. You can go to your guidance counselor, the case manager. Make sure that this document, which you, you hear Dr. Plunkett, how much work goes into this, not only for her, but for your child. So if your child is going to go through this evaluation, get the information out there, because the more people who know, the more your child can get that help. So go around with some recommendations for us. What do they look like, Dr. Plunkett? Absolutely. So, so the one of the things that I will include is even, even just general. So even more thinking about little kids, right? So we're thinking in the classroom, recommendations for teachers, having things like the posted schedule for the day. If your kids are not reading yet, then you can have actually images. So that's going to help kids know, okay, and by images, I mean, like, you know, you're going to have like circle time image, and then you're going to have a book because it's reading time, and you're going to have a math because it's math time. You have images that the kids aren't reading yet, but you want to have a schedule posted in the classroom. So kids who struggle with time management, task switching, they can look up it. They have some centralized location that they can look up and they can see, okay, this is what I'm doing next. I know I have to do this. So let's mm -hmm. take those recommendations and make sense of them now based on the evaluation. So <clears throat> educators, so many of us are like visual kings and queens. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. And it's amazing. I walk in some classrooms, I'm like, wow, my visuals will never look as good as that. <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> I'm all about taking pictures of the actual students themselves doing the act yes. of what the action it is that they need to be doing and then the outcome. Yes. Seeing themselves in the process helps to support that working memory, which is tucked away in that area that we were talking about and puts it in a place that they can help remember. It also can help them <clears throat> with task flexibility and initiation. And that's why the schedule comes into play. So let's dig just a little bit deeper. I'm gonna let you do this part where you have um, a child who has difficulty moving from one task to another, that flexibility part, talk to us like we have no idea what that is and why those visuals are important, but how does it support your findings and, and how that child is silently struggling? So now us parents and educators have that, oh, this is the real why we need to do this, not just because they see it and maybe they'll do it, but this is the deeper why. Give us that deeper why, Dr. Puckett. Yes, definitely. So we have standardized tests that um, show children with executive weaknesses, they'll show, they'll score very poorly on these tasks of set switching. So we know 
kids who, and, and we also have tasks that measure initiation, how quickly kids can initiate tasks. So we have multiple measures that look at these areas of deficit. So when we find those deficits, you can see a child with exec executive weaknesses, they, for them to understand that they have to stop a task. Also, you have kids with executive who get rigid, right? So their ability to stop the task, to recognize that it's time to stop the task, to stop the task, and then switch to another task can be very difficult. It can be overwhelming. You also have to think about the kids with attention weaknesses. You could be telling them 12 times that they need to switch the task, but then they'll be startled because they didn't even recognize that it was time to switch the task. So providing them with an awareness, improved awareness of these are the expectations. This is the information about what's going to happen first and what's going to happen next. It breaks it down for them as well. And then also I, I say include things like um, prompts. So warning prompts that, you know, you can set like a timer or something. So it's like, or you can verbalize five minutes until it's time to wrap up or one minute until it's time to wrap up. And then we're going to do reading, something like that. But it absolutely shows up in our testing as well on these exams about a child who is unable to, again, like I said, initiation, task switching, um, and working memory weaknesses as well. That's where it's going to show up in your classroom. So we have a name for that now, everybody. Cognitive flexibility. Yes. We have a name. When you have a student crying because it is now time to leave the classroom or they need to stop doing the math. They didn't finish, they ran right. out of time, and now they need to start listening to a book or doing something else. And they're, they're ready to have a meltdown. Here it is, cognitive flexibility. It's not just a thing that happens. It's a part in their brain that needs to be supported. And part of that, I wish I had my tools, I didn't expect this, but part of that is helping them understand their own awareness through the visuals. Like when I use the launch, the launch tool, you could see it actually, where am I? Here's the launch tool. That's cognitive engagement to start. They have that tool. They know they're getting distracted. Mm. They can say, okay, I, I, I need something to get me going. And it's building on their awareness, but now they're going, they don't need that launch tool anymore. They might need their self-talk Tool. Oh my goodness, I would love for you to talk, talk to us about self-talk and executive functioning. Because self-talk could tell them, focus, 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 when somebody else next to them, or there's, there's noise in the hallway, or they're just distracted by their own random thoughts. Self-talk is a cognitive skill that supports executive functioning to help them keep on task. So can you even just briefly speak to us about maybe self-talk and, and what that means cognitively? Absolutely. So part of my work and, and when I do executive function coaching is improving the child's awareness of when they're becoming distracted, right? So self-talk can come in. Initially, the kids, they may not even realize that they're like, you know, they saw like, again, my cat picture behind me. And then all of a sudden they're thinking about their cat and then like, what they're do, whatever, like brings them off to a whole tangent, increasing the child's awareness of when they're going on a tangent and the teacher has been talking for five minutes and they're somewhere else, improving their self-talk, improving their self-redirection to tell themselves to focus, to give themselves a direction can be critical for them. And then as the teachers, we want to improve 
improve their mindfulness as teachers and parents. We want to improve their mindfulness while they're working, which goes kind of hand in hand with self-talk. So for example, as a recommendation I have for the kids is, you know, as they're reading through instructions, increase mindfulness, increase presence in the moment, underline key information and the instructions, circle the sign of a math operation before you start beginning the math problem so that you're keyed in, you're focused, you're mindful of what you're doing, and you have that present self-talk can be very critical for kids with executive and attention weaknesses. And with all of that, like you mentioned before, the social emotional learning, now the child can easily accept and receive when you say a behavior specific praise of I see that you launched and you use the strategy of underlining the key words. You really stayed on task. Now the child knows what they did. They hear it. Hopefully they're replaying that visual image supporting that working memory part of your executive functioning of what they did. So guess what will happen? More likely to do it again next time. So do you see my teacher friends out there? This is some of your why. This is why we need the Dr. Plunkett's of the world because they can help us bridge that psychology part, that clinical part, really understanding what's going on and how we can use it. You see their recommendations, some I've seen some reports and some are very general and it's like, I'm doing that already. It doesn't <laughs> right. help, you know? Right. And that's when you can have even a conversation with the parent or that's when you see Dr. Plunkett's recommendation. You say, you know what? That makes sense because that now ties into her results, which I can read easily and as an educator, not a psychologist, I can understand that. And when I can understand what my students are going through, I am more empathetic and I'm more knowledgeable, which means I can drive curriculum better and I can set more effective limits that are meaningful to students. So I hope educators you see the important tie-in of what we're talking about today. Absolutely. And Lisa, I want to just go off one thing you said that was just perfect, um, is that when you were providing the praise to our child just then, your praise was specific to what the child was doing, right? So you gave the specific praise that you did a great job redirecting your thoughts and staying on task. And I think that's another recommendation I often give educators is praise a ton, like you speak about praise often and frequent also giving that specific praise. So what did the child specifically do well in that moment? So, oh, Cece, you did a great job putting your materials in your desk, in your, in your specific spot, and then you were able to transition to whatever it is, right? But giving that specific praise of what a child did well also reinforces that behavior, which is so critical for them. Yes, and I think you'll agree. And, and by the way, if anybody wants some examples to use in the classroom, um, I have free on Teachers Pay Teachers under Henry's Tools, and it's a little poster of different behavior-specific praise statements that are easily used, and it actually coincides with the professional development that I provide, because with all great intent as parents and educators, or even service providers, when we say good boy, good girl, or you're so smart, what we're doing is putting judgment on their character. And we're talking about kids who struggle. So actually, Dr. Plunky, could you talk to us about what it might feel like or what you know the perception might be 
toward a child who's struggling when we, with all great intention, maybe try and reinforce them in, in ways that put a judgment on their character? Absolutely. So anytime, you're right, anytime you say like the girl, the boy, right? And, and also anytime it's like um, kind of a backhanded compliment, right? So we're like, oh, you did a good job this day, but why can't you do that every time, right? That, it does take a hit on the child's self-esteem. And I do talk about, particularly in some of my reports, and it's very relevant for the kids, um, that a lot of our kids with executive weaknesses and the majority of their day oftentimes getting reprimanded, redirected. And over time, you can imagine if all you're hearing all day is like, good job, but, or just like good job general, it over time, um, well, the good job general, you kind of don't know what was a good job, right? And the good job, but is like, okay, but I, I still failed, right? I'm still not achieving what I should. And over time, that's when we see the kids, low frustration tolerance, getting really hard on themselves, low self-esteem, low self-reliance, and then that that kind of compounds into even greater difficulty in the classroom. Low self-reliance. Talk to us about what that is. Yeah, so the kids with low, over time, again, these kids who struggle in the classroom and they're often getting the good job butts or they're often just getting reprimanded. Over time, they kind of lose their, their um, ability to trust in themselves, ability yes. to feel- Did you hear that, that everybody? Can. The ability to trust in themselves. That's huge. That's their heart. Beautifully yes. said. Yes. So over time, they kind of they don't feel like they can problem solve on their own. They don't feel like they can they can figure out a situation, and they don't. They, so they're constantly seeking validation, constantly seeking support, rather than trusting themselves and that they can accomplish what they need to accomplish. I hope we're really, really taking this information to heart here. Because we all love our students, we all love our kids, and there are so many interventions that we can use every day that's not really another thing to do. Maybe initially, we're just kind of learning a little bit, but it's really not an add-on. It's just a thing that you end up doing when you're interacting with your students. I want to switch gears for a second. You mentioned dyslexia. And as is something that you may find within um, the results of your evaluations, how do you have a conversation? What does a conversation look like to a parent? And you, this may be, Dr. Plunkett, something you may or may not be aware of at the time, but there's still so many districts that don't have programs that are specific to dyslexia or real true reading disabilities. Um, how do you have this conversation in what their child needs and, um, and, and their next steps, what they should do? Right. This is a hard one. So, you know, again, I'm finding more districts are using um, programs recognized by the National Reading Panel, um, but not all of them, right? And so then it is hard because we know the research shows that kids, for example, with dyslexia, they really need a very specific program to work through all of the fundamentals of reading. Um, so when I'm speaking to parents, certainly my first goal is, and I, I do actually attend now virtually, of course, a lot of CSC 504 meetings. Um, I think it's very helpful for me to be there to explain the results and really try to make sure the school has the chance to ask questions and really get at the recommendations that we need for that kid. Um, you know, when the school doesn't have uh, sort of a recommended program, 
I will speak to the school about, about the programs that I would recommend. You, you really some, go that extra mile. I try, I try, uh, you know, and, and, and sometimes it's well-received. I certainly understand. I've worked in a lot of different districts um, with different levels of resources. And I understand that there are limitations there as well. But we try to see what can we do to provide this child with the best resources possible. And, and, you know, sometimes, again, there are limits in the district. And when that is the case, I really do try to encourage the parents to seek out resources of their own, tutoring on their own. And um, for, I'll, I'll give an example of Wilson as, as a common one um, used for dyslexia. And so the, you can go on the website, Wilson, Horton, Gillingham, there's many, right? But you go, to the, you go to the good ones and you can find trained professionals who can work with your child to provide that resource. And then my, what I typically then recommend is that that tutor, that trained tutor in the program, the dyslexia program that we've selected, try to consult with the school. So consult with whatever reading teacher um, is, is being accessed at the school to provide that consultation. So hopefully we can get a consistency of support across the home-based tutoring and the school-based tutoring if the school is not able to provide that specific resource. Right. Um, okay. So let's recap that. So for the districts who don't have a particular program, there's two popular ones, but there's others. Yes. Um, and the parent could look for and search for a tutor who is a certified, who is certified in the Wilson reading program or the Orton Gillingham program. So yes. that way, when you're getting a tutor, it's somebody who is going to support your child in a program to meet those reading needs. And then as Dr. Plunkett said, it's important now for the tutor and parents, this is important for you to ask your tutor and bridge that gap for them between home and school, have them contact your child's teacher or teachers. And don't just think if you have a child in secondary, that they should be talking to their ELA teacher. They should be talking to every teacher because there's reading in every class. And so you wanna see that your child is bringing in those skills and strategies in every class because why? It's only going to benefit your child in the long run. Yes, absolutely. Great advice. Fantastic. We are hitting so much today, Dr. Plunkett. We are. We are. We're doing great. I think that this is one of those episodes where our listeners need to listen to the end and then go back and start taking notes. <laughs> right. <laughs> there was one definition or acronym um, that you had used that we did not explain to the um, our listeners, and that was a 504 plan. Can you just explain to them what that is? Sure. So the 504, so when your child is in IEP, they're actually part of special education. 504 is not part of special education. A 504 accommodation plan is provided um, by the school um, for, again, a child who, who meets for special education has shown that their disability, their diagnosis, um, that impacts their ability to access the curriculum. So their, school, their grades are probably failing or underachieving. A 504 plan is for those students who their presentation, it can be a variety of things, can be a medical disorder, anxiety, ADHD, um, is impacting their learning, but not to the extent that they require special education. So 504 can be um, 
I'm seeing more and more comprehensive 504 plans. It can include many things. It can include things like, for example, testing accommodations, extended time, separate location, breaks. Um, it can include preferential seating. It can include um, uh, counseling support. So it inc can include multiple things, but it's a less formalized. The IEP is very formal, very structured, includes goals that have to be met, et cetera. The 504 is really just information um, regarding the specific supports that your child needs, but it's not as comprehensive. It doesn't include so many goals and that kind of thing. Um, so it's it's different in that way. It's not a special education resource. It's an additional resource provided. Um, it's a bit less structured, but can be accessed by students with many different presentations. And how would a parent um, go about learning more or saying my child's struggling? Where do they go to question? What's this 504? Who do they talk to in school? So I think it, one of your best first stops is the school psychologist. The school psychologist can provide a lot of information about that. You know, if you're just kind of having a general conversation, you can reach out to the teachers and they can give you a little bit of information. But again, head over to the school psychologist, behavioral specialist, the, you know, the principals, of course, can also provide that information. But um, those, those the, for example, the school psychologist can provide you with what is it? With your child, are they kind of in that realm? And then provide the next steps to being referred to the 504 committee. Great. So something else that you and I had spoken about is our passion of <laughs> taking this information and really bringing it into the schools and working on a multidisciplinary level to really reach the needs of the child as a whole. And so one of the essential questions that you and I both wrote down before we started this episode, because one of us had to remember, I did it. <laughs> and that is, um, talk to us about, in your opinion, why do you think that working memory, executive functioning, basically the foundation of what we've been talking about today, why has that been so extensively researched in neuroscience and psychology? but it has not made it into education. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I think that it's, 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 it's so true. There's so much research on it. And as a neuropsychologist, it's like one of the areas I really focus on. And I worked in rehab for a period of time. So I really focus on it. But I think we just need, we need to educate our educators, right, Lisa? We need to provide those um, professional development seminars. We need to be providing the teachers and the academic teams with information on what it is, why it's important, because so many teachers, so many parents come to me and they have these questions, like, like the question about the kid will be learning the information and seem to grasp it. And then 15 minutes later, it's gone. And why is it gone? Or they can't perform on tests. So we have those questions, but we aren't bringing it all together in order to get that information out to the schools. So I, you know, over time, I am seeing more questions about, I have school psychologists reaching out to me saying they want to do an executive functioning group. How could they do that? I have Great. parents who come to me and they're like, can you do like an executive functioning seminar for the academic team? I'll pay you to do it. You know, so it's getting there. It's getting out there, but we need to do more as, as professionals, as educators, we need to do more. Right. So we're going to put a big banner, professional development in yes. all areas of executive functioning and how it could benefit you and your students and child. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's what we need. Yes. yes. 
big banners. We're not going away here on <laughs> Student Success Beyond Expectations podcast. So Dr. Plunkett, how can our listeners reach you? If they need you, how do they get in contact with you? Oh, well, I would love it. Anybody, any questions you have, of course, if you, if you need evaluations, those kind of things, but even if you just have questions about anything you heard on this podcast, the questions about executive functioning, anything, reach out to me. So I have, um, you can head over to my website. It's lindsayplunkettphd.com. Reach out, shoot me an email, lindsayplunkettphd at gmail.com, or give me a call, 516-413-7913. Whatever's best, I'm happy to answer any questions anybody has um, and be a resource as needed. Great. Thank you so much for sharing your wealth of experience and passion in helping children who struggle and for those who educate them and who love them. Thank you so much, Lisa. Such a privilege. Thank you.